All right, let's return back to, let's begin again in Psalm. Actually, you know what? We're going to be in uh, Romans 1.18. So Romans 1, and then we'll uh, go to Psalm 19 again. So if you want to stick a finger in both, feel free or not. And we'll take time to turn there. Romans 1. Romans 1. All right, so uh, we are going through a course on effective, or you could use the King James word, effectual Bible study. All right, let me throw this question out. What, what are some things you would say uh, would be a part, or maybe the point, of effective Bible study? What kind of things? Like, what makes, what makes Bible study effective? Not a Bible study, but Bible study in general. What, what kind of things make it effective? I mean, there's our receptivity. That's huge. We talked about that last time. Romans 12, 1 and 2 basically presupposes that you and I have a submissive disposition, that we treat it as the Word of God and we're there to hear. But beyond that, assuming our disposition is right with God, what kind of things are part of or the result of good Bible study? The sharing of ideas. Okay, sharing of ideas, but I guess let me say it's got to be more specific than that. Because a lot of forums today are, are sharing ideas in the idea, in, in the, I, I get what you're saying, but a lot of idea sharing today is in the context of your truth, my truth. Or somebody might say something like this, Will, what does this passage mean to you? Is that a, is that an, is that a good question? No. Why? Because. You're right. Why? Yeah, because that question is basically typically framed from a mindset of you and I, this passage can mean three different things to me and you and, and, and you, and we can just all have our truth. That's very common today. Dialogue and group discussions with coffee. Nothing wrong with the coffee, but it's a nebulous sort of non-dogmatic approach to the Bible, basically meaning it can mean whatever you and I decide we think it should mean or whatever I feel like it means. And believe me, there's no small number of studies with that type of approach. It's completely wrong. Okay, what other, what other things though might be? Okay, now group discussion, good discussion, definitely can go along with that. What else? Yes, what kind of application? You're right. Applying God's Word accurately, because that's huge. In other words, getting from black and white, or black and red page, getting from that to actually affecting what I'm doing today. Effective Bible study takes the Word of God and ends up making right application that's biblically accurate and actually affects my life at ground level. In other words, this is not just a, a, a philosophy book where we nibble on it and say, well, that's an interesting theory. 
So I guess my point is effective Bible study is the discipline of learning how to properly interpret the scriptures so that I can apply it to my life. Now, we asked the question last week again, how many things in life does that affect? How do you know, how do you know what sound doctrine looks like? How do you know that? What, what's it based on? Does sound doctrine always feel good? It, sure, it certainly doesn't always feel good. I can tell you when I was reproved for my wickedness as a professing Christian at age 19, when somebody got in my face about my listening to the rappers crucified on a cross on the front of this album, and I claim to be a Christian, and I'm blaring this, and this guy says, you claim to be a Christian and you're listening to this? How can you do that? Well, sound doctrine didn't feel very good. In fact, it didn't feel very good for about six weeks. So how do we know sound doctrine? There's only one way. It's a proper application of the Bible. Okay, let me, let me put it this way. Can you make the Bible anything, say anything you want? Can you twist Scripture to justify anything? Through your interpretation of it. Yes, that's what I mean. Through a wrong interpretation. Does the devil ever do that? Oh, yeah. Do you remember him quoting Scripture to God in the flesh? Actually quoted the Psalms to Jesus to get him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, and he actually pulled out Scripture to back it up. Now, he left out the crucial part of that. So, you can make the Bible say anything you want. It, it, one, in fact, it, I've actually—I'm telling you—I've seen this. I've seen this happen. That verse really spoke to me. And and what somebody just did is basically flip through and look for one isolated text that backed up the way they want to go. And it's very hard to get them away from that when that passage is completely misinterpreted. I don't know how many times I've seen that happen. I've, I've heard people tell me the most, some of the most outlandish, outlandish things that God told them to do when it's obvious they had no clue what they were talking about. So, effectual Bible study is the time spent and the discipline to get to understand how to rightly interpret this in order to make application where it actually affects my life. It, it affects what type of church I'm a part of. It affects what I listen to. It affects who my friends are. It affects uh, what I look like on the exterior. More than that, what I'm going for on the interior. It affects how I spend my time. It affects how I spend my money. It truly affects everything. And so this is, I, I can't really overstate the importance of, of a theme like this. Now, last time we were going through the types of revelation. Uh, remember, revelation, not the book of revelation, but God, the idea with revelation is an unveiling. In other words, if God did not, and I'm going to use the word condescend, and when I say that, I don't mean he, he became less than God, but God reached down to us. It, you and I would have never found God by searching on our own. It, it, it wouldn't have happened. God, there are things God gave information God gave that we would have never had if God did not give it. And again, we were back in the Garden of Eden that God comes to Adam. 
He didn't just put Adam in the garden and say, here's your garden, have a nice life. Because Adam would have been wandering around going, why am I here? God made Adam. He put him in the garden. Then he told him his purpose, dress and keep the garden. Then he told Adam his need is not good for man to be alone. And then he met that need. And then he brought her to Adam and said, here is how I met the need. It's met. And he does it to us. He tells us why we're here. He tells us where we're going. Uh, He tells us our need. He tells us how that need's been provided. So last time we were talking, let's review just a bit. Who remembers what what is... We're talking about the, the two different major kinds of revelation. Natural revelation or general revelation. Anybody remember what's that? What's that talking about? When we say general or natural revelation, the word natural is a big clue. Nature. Okay, it's, it's God revealed through the things that are made. All right, now, is this an accurate statement? Most people in the world, or let me, let me put it this way, somebody who doesn't know Christ is just a poor, helpless victim who's wandering around the world hoping to find some kind of truth so that they can really latch onto it, and as soon as they find it, they'll know. Is that an accurate statement? Is mankind an unwilling or a a helpless victim in his sin? No. Uh, And again, if you ask the average person on the street, they may tell you they're seeking God, but what's our authority? See, Romans 1-3 through does a lot of things. One of the things it does is go behind the scenes of sinful, depraved man's heart and tell you what's going on in here and here. Uh, Romans 1 tells you how an atheist becomes an atheist. Richard Dawkins doesn't have a clue how an atheist becomes an atheist. God does. He makes a fundamental decision that he hates God and he doesn't want his authority. And so he goes looking for scientific fact to back up his position, and he willfully blinds himself to any and all evidence that says otherwise. So there's no such thing as a completely objective atheist. Those do not exist on the earth. There's no such thing as an atheist that got there purely through scientific evidence. There's a decision of the heart, and God tells us this. And again, picking up in Romans 1.18, just staggering stuff. For the wrath of God, again, is revealed. That's present tense. This is not talking about hell. That is a type of God's wrath. This is talking about God's, what you might say, passive wrath, His judgment that is given to men who do a certain thing. And here's what it is. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men... Why? Who hold the truth in in, in unrighteousness. And and again, that word hold means to suppress. So God's God's authoritative viewpoint from heaven is mankind is actively pushing down truth constantly. He's pushing it down. The witness of conscience is screaming at him and he shoves it down. And he gets out on a starry night and 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 he begins to think, This couldn't have happened by itself, therefore it had to be made. And therefore, whoever made this had to be greater than what he made. And it follows that whoever made that made me. And it follows from that, that if whoever made that made me, he's my authority and I'm accountable to him, he owns me. And here's where the the sinful block comes up. No. No, in fact, some honest atheists have actually admitted, and they said the only other option is that there's a God, and I can't have that. 
Guys have actually said that. It's a chilling statement. So, uh, and then we see here that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, verse 20, being understood by or being understood through the things that are made, even his internal power and Godhead, so that man looks and sees God's eternal. He sees that he's a God of eternality and of all power and of great authority. That, that's what he can see through creation. And he says there, so that they're without excuse. Again, the witness of creation is enough to condemn somebody to hell. It is very common today. Even Billy Graham, toward the end of his life, started saying it. Many, many others have. That as long as there's some, you know, some sincere adherent of a fake religion in Africa or somewhere else that didn't have a Bible, as long as they were sincere to Islam or as long as they were sincere to whatever they worshipped, God will accept that because God understands their plight. But that... You get to that position through human reason, not through the Scriptures. Because God's declaration is, man is without excuse, just based on the witness of conscience and creation. That is enough to condemn. But it's not enough to save. Basically what that does is weeds out those who are willing to seek God. And, and I, I, I can't explain all the details of this, but I know enough about God to say dogmatically, you seek Him, you find Him. Anybody, somebody can be in the most darkest, the darkest pagan, unbiblical, heathen place on the earth, but if they respond in their soul properly to natural revelation and they cry out, they actually want to know God, He will send them light. He will send them light. Somebody says, How? However he wants. His ways are infinite. And uh, the stories to back that up are, are legion. So again, what saith the scriptures? They're without excuse. Um, so man, and, and again, society is filled with this. Why would, uh, I mean, why has the world pitted science against religion? There is no contradiction between science and the Bible. There never has been a contradiction between science, real science and the Bible. Why would the world create that fake contradiction? Why would they want why do they want this out of the schools? I mean, is that deception? Deception. They don't want they, they hate God. They hate God. They want control, they hate God, they suppress truth. This is light. And creatures of the dark want to stay in the dark. So the evidences of that are on every hand. Okay, so that's where we stopped last time. Back to, let's go back to Psalm 19. And uh, it's amazing things here, continuing on this idea of natural revelation. Psalm 19. Some of you heard our family refer to Psalm 19 time. It's what we call our uh, wilderness excursions. Because it's so glorious to see God's hand in nature. <clears throat> so Psalm 19, people suppress the truth that surrounds them every minute of every day. And again, this is God's viewpoint. Man says, I'm a helpless victim. God says, you're a willing accomplice in your own destruction. Man says, I just didn't know any better. God said, you've had plenty of light. By the way, in the day of judgment, 
Man's opinion doesn't matter at all. There's one opinion that matters, and that's his. Um, So creation provides a great benefit. They know of God's existence. They ignore that revelation of their eternal peril. In fact, the young man that that, that I was visiting with after the service and then all afternoon last Sunday, we got into talking about some of the creation stuff. We, We had a good talk about it, but just some of the logical deductions based on creation, because we started in Genesis. And uh, no matter how you cut it, the evolutionist has to accept evolution by faith. He has to. Why do I say that? Number one, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. Number two, he's assuming, he's assuming, just like Peter said people would in the end times, that all things continue as they were from the beginning. He's assuming that what he observes right now has always been the case. Uh, I, I described this uh, when we went to Lewis and Clark Caverns. It, it just what a stark illustration of this. Uh, it is a neat place, it really is. But some of you have been there. Most of you probably have. But you, you go in these two different. It says stalagmite or stalactite. Which one's hanging at the top? I always forget. The one that's hanging from the top. Two things stuck out to me with those. One of them was we go in two different caverns, and, and the tour guide, she points out, she says, okay, now this stalagmite or tight, T, I think it's a tight is on top, right? I'll say stalactite, forgive me if I'm wrong. This stalactite, this one's 200,000 years old. You know, it's got water dripping off it because extrapolating the rate of drip, that's been there for 200,000 years. I said to my wife, I said, man, she's older than she looks. I wouldn't have taken her more than 40. (laughs) And then we go to the next cave. And she says, see, now that one, that one's only 40,000 years old because of the rate of drip. Think of the colossal assumptions behind that dogmatic statement. You're assuming that water has dripped that exact same rate for 200,000 years. Are you kidding me? And then actually one of the more fascinating ones, one of the stalactites was curved like a horn. How do you explain that except cataclysmic event? There, there is no way to explain that besides rapid water and wind. Nothing else could do that. Steady drip, and they even said, we have no idea about that one. So evolution has these colossal assumptions. What else? Something came from nothing. Doesn't matter. What? Yes. Here's a really good one. When somebody says something's 200,000 years old, say that's impossible. And they'll look at you and say, why? And, and you say, because you're assuming that the sun is stagnant in the amount of energy it puts on. Yep. 200,000 years ago, the sun would have been yep. far too large. For, for yep. It would have killed us. And the Earth's magnetic field would have been horrific. And the dust on the moon. Remember, they jumped off on the moon and they expected 60 feet of dust. There's a quarter inch. 6,000 years worth. Yeah, exactly. So, but in either scheme, something came from nothing. Something came from nothing. In fact, I used the illustration when I was talking with him, and some of you may have heard this. We talked about this years ago, but if you mathematically, you know, the evolutionist says, okay, 14 billion years is the current cosmological horizon. That's when evidently something began to form with some primordial soup and everything exploded and created the known universe. That's what they'll say, 14 billion years. That would be, and of course they know this based on this, this maybe, maybe 40 years of study. That would be like you, actually I've done the math on this, it works out roughly to these dimensions. That's like take a highway that goes all the way across the country from coast to coast, 
okay? Take a highway that long, and you study one inch of it, and based on that one inch, you know dogmatically what every other inch looks like. And you would, you would tell me that is absolutely stupid. You've got to be kidding me. That's what evolution is doing in our schools every single day. Every day. So my point is, it's a system of faith. Their faith is not based on objectivity. It's based on a willful rejection of God. That's what it's based on. Um, now, Paul, what he said in Romans 1.18, it's possible. I mean, the Holy Spirit's the author, but it's possible Paul had Psalm 19 going through his mind because of what it says. All right, now, let's just look at it. Psalm 19, everybody there? Okay, the heavens declare. Uh, that means they rehearse the glory of God. So, every night, somebody looks up, and the stars are replaying the glory of God every night. It's like you hit repeat every night, and this is rehearsing it. And the firmament showeth or publishes his handiwork. The, the earth around us and the heaven above are screaming out, Creator. And uh, again, we go through these creation moments on purpose, and I dare say, I don't know that Darwin, of course, he made the choice maybe, but I wonder if Darwin would have been a Darwinist if he lived today. If he, the, the, I don't know that, but the colossal weight of scientific evidence pointing to a creator is 10,000-fold what it was in his day. For somebody today to look at the complexity of DNA or biochemistry or the, the photoreceptors in the human eye or any number of the fields out there, the sheer number of the, what they think is 76 trillion stars or 70 with 21 zeros after it, in uh, these numbers that are thrown around, truly they're without excuse. It's just unbelievable. But look at this. Day unto day uttereth or pours out speech. So it's talking all the time. Night unto night showeth knowledge. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Or, I'm sorry, verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Why is that important? <laughs> this is a universal witness. I take the pygmy in a loincloth in the jungle, or the guy in his Manhattan high-rise working late at night on some financial project. This witness is universal. There is no speech nor language where their voice isn't heard. Uh, natural revelation is worldwide universal. It speaks to a child. It speaks to adults. Or it shows things, I should say, to be more specific. Um, so no one's exempt from God's revelation of himself through nature. No one. The heavens and the sky teach across the cultural barriers of the globe. As an example, God offers a daily journey of the sun. Just as the sun illuminates everything in the face of the earth, so the universe illuminates the God who created it. Like I ran across a statement this morning. Uh, Lord Kelvin said this. He said, if you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to believe in God. And I thought, what a, what a great statement. If you think strongly enough, you'll be forced by science to believe in God, which is basically what Albert Einstein admitted. Although I don't think he was a believer, but he basically admitted 
There has to be a supreme being. There has to be. You've got to be kidding me. Look at the complexity out there. So God's character is glorious, according to Psalm 19.1. The word glory contains the concept of worthiness or a value that's unmistakable. So God has done that which no one else can do. Not only did he create something out of nothing, but he also made it vast and grand and complex. Create something out of nothing. Think, think, just think about that. You, you ever stop and think about the, the unfathomable brilliance? You've got to remember, God wasn't working off any framework. Even if you had the power and intelligence to try to start another universe, you would build off this framework. Gravity, you'd say, well, gravity has to pull down. Says who? <laughs> this entire system of physical laws and everything was created out of nothing. Out of nothing. And uh, again, the evolutionist always comes back to the uncaused cause. You ever try to pin one of them down? Where'd man come from? Apes, okay, you keep asking that question. Well, the primordial soup and organisms combining, where'd those come from? Well, those came from this, which all formed into this one thing, which they, I forget what they call that everything was condensed into one big ball. You talk about a heavy ball. Where'd that come from? Where did that come from? I don't know. There you go. So don't mock the creationist who says God made it out of nothing because that's not, that's not a logical problem. Nothing becoming everything without a cause. Now that is a lack of logic. <laughs> that is illogical. So the general revelation of creation shows a God who's worthy of worship. All right, but there are limitations. Okay, general revelation is limited in its effect. It, as some have said, I don't know if this is completely accurate, but I'll read it anyway. It shows, but it does not speak. And, and what, they're, what they're basically saying is, it points to things, but it doesn't give enough information that that's all somebody needs. In other words, I don't think anybody can say they came to Christ strictly through the stars. That's a starting point, but natural revelations limit it. We learn of God's existence and power and glory. It says His eternal power and Godhead in Romans twenty, but or Romans one twenty. But it doesn't. It says relatively little about His character. I mean, does creation tell you that God is a just judge? No. I mean, maybe you might you might get that implication, but not directly. Does, I mean, you might say, well, I, I think he's got to be a loving creator. Look at the beauty he made. We might make that deduction. But we don't know much about it. And you have to know something of God's power to come to Christ. You have to. You have to know something of God's character. You have to. That, that's, those are the major pillars of the gospel. God's justice. God's mercy and grace. How can he exercise both? The cross. That's how. All right, Revelate, Romans 8. In fact, we're not going to, I don't think we're going to turn there, but uh, Romans 8, fantastic passage, but verses 18 to 22 talks about all of creation groaning and travailing in pain together till now. You ever hear the song of like a, a whale? You ever hear that song? 
The, you know, they, they have the microphones that detect that. How sad it is. Some scientists will say most of the universe is actually singing out in a minor key. It's a very mournful sound. And they pick up these noises now. It sounds like it's groaning. All of creation, Paul says, is groaning. So we have, what do we have as a result? You look at a world full of natural disasters, so-called natural disasters, although that is really a misnomer, but we call them that. Sickness, uh, seemingly senseless killings. It, it's sad that it's commonplace for men to basically thumb their nose at God daily. And then something bad happens, and what comes out of their mouth? Why would, if God is good, why would he let this happen to me? Well, if God was good before this happened to you, you should have listened. That doesn't solve every problem. I know those things happen to people walking with God, but I'm saying an ungodly world throws that out there. Why is the world so bad? Well, can we really expect to completely hurl out the Creator's guidelines and expect the creation to function well? <laughs> no. No, 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 that, that doesn't work. So creation is groaning. And uh, people will accuse God of not being in control or not caring. <laughs> but uh, the majesty of creation, even in a sin-cursed state, can still draw people to the Creator. You ever, I find it fascinating to stop and think, this, this is the sin-cursed version of creation. I mean, on one side, I don't even think we can fathom the beauty of Eden. I think, our, 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 I, I think we would be so utterly speechless at a beauty like that. Because we, we've never seen any, we've never seen perfection like that. A garden designed by God Himself. Can you imagine? So that's one side. But on the other side, the longer I live, the more I'm fascinated at God's goodness, at how much of His glory and beauty and tenderness and care and detail and design is manifested even through an evil world. I was sitting in town yesterday at a restaurant, and uh, you know those burning bushes? Those ones, that I love those plants. Love those. I planted some at my last house. I'm hoping to plant more on my rock pile right now, but that, that's not coming for a little while. i got to get some dirt up there first for something to grow in. But they're beautiful. I was looking at that and I was just thinking of the axiom that <laughs> what, what's causing that beauty? Death. That plant's dying. Fall colors. I love fall colors. But even in death, it makes me think of uh, God's choice elder saints when they die. They're like the brilliant fall colors in New England or something. They're fading, but yet there's a beauty in that fading. And we see that. Uh, I mean, you ever stop and think, what if, what if God took away all color when man sinned? What if the whole world was gray? Everything. Everything's gray. Would we know the difference? I remember hearing a preacher years ago, and I never heard it, like, but I thought, I've thought about it ever since. 
What if God just gave you rice? What if that was all that was on earth was rice? That was it, rice. What do we have? Nobody asked that question. Food. There's one kind of food, rice. Look at the variety. It fascinates me as a woodworker. How many, I mean, I've been doing woodworking for a lot of years, and I'm familiar with a lot of the exotic woods out there, but there's way more that I don't know. I used to go to this, this store in Anchorage, would carry a lot of these exotic hardwoods, fascinating, beautiful stuff. And, and I would add, what's that? And what's those? Some of them I couldn't pronounce. And I mean, green and purple and black and blue and yellow and bloodwood that looks like a, the fawn, a deer fawn's skin with these spotting in it. And, and it fascinated me because I thought, God could have just given us wood. Just wood. We wouldn't know the difference. What's it made out of wood? Okay. Well, now you got to ask which wood. And uh, because there's, there's thousands of them. So, the, I mean, the flowers, you ever said, look, I mean, there's flowers that are this big and they're beauty. And then there's ones that you can only see in a microscope. And, and the, the intricate design, it, it's, it's, it's astounding. Or crystals, how those form, or the various kinds of rocks and the beauty. Or, and on and on we could go. The, you ever see the same sunset twice? You ever seen the same sunrise twice? <laughs> no. So even in the sin-cursed world, his glory, his beauty is constantly shining through. Uh, his consistency of character. I mean, any of you wonder if spring's going to come? And sometimes we have those years where we wonder. Uh, I remember a year in Alaska, we, uh, we came to call it the year without a summer. We had a summer, but we had relatives up. In fact, one year we had them up in July, and uh, we were up at Hatcher Pass's mining area. It looks like the Alps, beautiful mountains, about 30 minutes from where we lived. And we used to love going up there to traipse around. It's an incredible, incredible area. Wildflowers and old mining carts and open shafts and waterfalls and all kinds of cool stuff. And you could walk for miles because the way the terrain was. It was a little above the brush line. And so you could just walk. Um, but we were up there one year in July. It's like 80-some degrees. The next year, our relatives come July 23rd. We go up there to have a picnic. And it just started dumping snow on us. I mean, snowing hard. And I'm sitting there going, you have got to be kidding me. It's July 23rd. And the termination dust, as we call it, when the snow starts marching down the mountains, and you know it's not going to stop marching. It started early that year. We, I think we had one day over 70 all summer. But yet, the seasons still come and go with their same regularity, just like Genesis 9 promised. While the earth remaineth, summer, winter, seed time, harvest, they're not going to change. They're going to continue. And God, has, he shows us faithfulness. None of us sit and wonder that. What controls that? The hand of God controls that. So uh, that should make men curious, asking how they can know the one who has the ability to create a system as large as the universe. And to find the answer, of course, uh, humanity needs special revelation. Okay, so general is natural. It's the things we observe. Special revelation is more confined. Special revelation is not special because it's better in quality, but its uniqueness is its narrower purpose. In other words, special revelation, God reveals truth that brings humanity into a saving relationship with Him and meets their needs within that relationship. So, in a sense... Special revelation is built on the foundation of general revelation. In fact, look at, are you still in Psalm 19? Look at how it goes from one to the other. Uh, 
Okay, we get up to verse 6. We're talking about special revelation. Verse 6, we're talking about the sun and its continuing course. But then you jump to verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Oh, here's a guy, he's reading this going, oh yeah, I, I see God through creation. Now, what is this law of the Lord that, that transforms a soul? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which is a reference to the Scriptures, it actually calls it the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and right altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them is great reward." So he goes right from natural revelation to special revelation, right in that well-known psalm. So those who respond to creation's call to learn of the Creator have to do so, this is big, on His terms. His terms. God does not play second fiddle, ever. He may put up with it in his patience with us. But so once again, it comes down to what? Submission and humility. It comes down to yielding of a stiff neck. I mean, it comes down to on one side, here's God and everything he's revealed about himself. If I walk through that doorway willingly, I'm saying he's in charge. I'm saying I'm not. I'm saying he knows everything. I'm saying I don't. I'm saying he's holy and I'm not. I'm saying his word is true and I'm a liar. Sadly, most people, and you can be religious and stand over here too. You can be religious and completely shut yourself off to, to God. It happens all the time. It's happening today. Thousands of people are sitting in religious buildings today and there's losses of goat in a hailstorm. And sadly, a lot of them pick to be there because they suppress truth. They don't want to hear it. So God used an interesting variety of methods to provide special revelation. Um, in fact, Hebrews 1 starts, God who at sundry times, various times, and in diverse manners, spake unto his servants the prophets in time past. So he's saying, God used a lot of different times and a lot of different ways to communicate special revelation. And he did. And we've talked about this extensively lately, so we're not going to go too in-depth. But, I mean, just, to, just sit and think of the ways God spoke His Word. God communicated Himself to men. It truly is a staggering thought. Uh, first of all, we could, we're going to mention prophets. All right, what was a... Uh, Let's try to get a definition here. When you think of an Old Testament prophet, what, do you, well, what was a prophet primarily? Was a, let, me, uh, let, me, let me ask this question. Is a prophet somebody who always worked miracles? No. In fact, the vast majority of the prophets didn't work miracles. What, what was a prophet? What was his primary, what was the number one function of a prophet? The number one function of a prophet. Well, to tell what the Lord's going to do. Very, or... To confront the rulers of that time, too, with their sin. Yes, to be the mouthpiece of God. 
basically. He was a conduit, a channel for God's, and in that era it was God's revelation. The scriptures are not written. So he was God's mouthpiece. Now let me ask this question. Did prophets always talk only about the future? No. If you go through the prophets, a huge percentage of their message was to their contemporaries. Uh, it wasn't just talking about things to come. You know, today, you, you, a lot of times, there's a lot of confusion on that, that, that a prophet, all he did was talk about future things. No, in fact, a prophet couldn't only talk about future things or distant future things because some of the tests of prophets demanded that he speak about things now. It demanded that. If, if a guy came and all he talked about was what's going to happen in a thousand years, and that's all he ever said, he would have been written off because they couldn't test him by the biblical tests. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy 13, actually, with me. Deuteronomy 13. This is a... All right, but Deuteronomy 13, but don't look at it yet. And I want to ask a question first. Deuteronomy 13, and we'll look at just the beginning of that. What were the Old Testament, what was the test, or was there more than one test for a prophet? To see if what he said would come true. Okay. And if it didn't come to pass, you killed him. Okay? So... One of, the, one, of the, one of the tests of a prophet was, and again, this is where I said he better have some predictions that are now, not just a thousand years from now, because they had to test him. So he says, all right, tomorrow at noon, thus saith the Lord, tomorrow at noon, whatever's going to happen, and it didn't happen. This guy was gone. That was it. Rocks. Okay, let me ask another question, though. What if what he said did come to pass? Did that prove he was a prophet? Okay, Deuteronomy 13. Because this is the other side of this that's important. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, look at verse 2, and the sign or the wonder come to pass... So, here's a guy that gives a sign or a wonder, and it happens. But, and he's saying, let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. So, even a guy that has his sign or wonder come to pass, if he's turning you away from what God has revealed about himself, He's still a fake. He's still a fake. And the Lord says, Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Look at this. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So God will actually at times, think about this. He will actually allow charlatans to have a sign or wonder come to pass to test his people whether they're actually going to follow his word or they're going to be consumed with the visual. 
And uh, there's other, I mean, you think, I think of the tribulation period when God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned because they received not the love of the truth. They, la, 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 they, did, they did this long enough and the Lord says, fine, you want signs and wonders, I'll give them to you. He's going to send some that are so powerful that even the saved people dwelling there, if they weren't supernaturally preserved, would go after it. So compelling. And so the, the signs were kind of multifaceted or the tests of a prophet. It was what they said, did it come to pass? And then if it did come to pass, what else did they say? I mean, did they do a sign or wonder or predict it and then, and then try to turn you away from God? As the scriptures were being written, they had the scriptures. Are they trying to turn you away? And if they are, don't listen to them. So God took the role of prophet very, very seriously. Oh, man. We're, we're going to have to stop again. Let me write this down and then we'll finish. It's the 927. Okay, so God took the role of a prophet extremely serious. I mean, for a guy to say, thus saith the Lord. Ooh, uh, he was truly taking his life in his hands. At, at the times when Israel was spiritually alert and actually walking with God, uh, you better not say that unless you had a message from God. But I, I think it's interesting, by the way, it's so common today. And, and speaking of Bible interpretation, let me just take a quick side trail. In understanding the distinction between the Old and New Testament and between Israel and the church and between the law... I mean, are there similarities between the law and some of what we're told? Yes. But are we under the same system as a binding rule of life? No, we are not. It's an important distinction. It's very common today for people to pick and choose. You know, you have a, a Seventh-day Adventist, for instance. Um, he's going to pick and choose. You know, to him, Ellen, Ellen White saw the, the Ten Commandments, and the fourth one was lit up in gold. A commandment about the Sabbath. So that's their, that's their big grinding axe, is, is, this, is the fourth commandment. But it's interestingly, interesting enough, they, they ignore vast portions of the Old Testament law. It doesn't work that way. You're under the law, you're under it. How about somebody today who stands up and says, I'm a prophet? Are there any of those? There's lots of those, and they're usually total kooks. Unless they know the word prophet in the New Testament sense, that's a different... Distinction. Okay, there is a right way to mention that today carefully. But somebody says, I'm a prophet, thus saith the Lord. And if the next words out of their mouth aren't this. But it's interesting, someone today will say they're a prophet. But if you asked them and said, all right, you're a prophet, are you willing to subject yourself to the biblical test of a prophet? If you want to take that mantle on yourself, does that mean we can stone you if you're wrong? That'd get rid of guys like Harold Camping, wouldn't it? And a whole bunch of others like him. So, again, coming back to interpretation, though, the law is a system. If someone wants to be under the law in the Old Testament, you, you better be under the whole thing if you're going to be consistent. The dietary law, the ceremonial law. Oh, wait, there's no, there's no tabernacle. There's no temple. Uh, exactly. Okay, now you're getting the point, right? It was a system. You had to have all of it. That's one of the biggest struggles for a Jew today is he has no place to offer sacrifice. That's why they're trying to build that third temple. So anyways, 
Uh, there were tests for profit. We'll talk more about profits next time, Lord willing. But let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us your word. And I pray you'd help us to grow in our, uh, our aptitude, our ability, our skill, and our submission as, as students of your word. Your word's powerful. And I pray we treat it as a guiding light. In Jesus' name, amen.